0: So this morning, we're going to work our way through the end of chapter 11, maybe even finishing chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, but before, let's, before we do that, let's open in prayer. Father, when you sent your son to pay the price of our redemption, it is an awesome thing that you did, and we will never truly, I think, understand the full measure of what you have done for us but it is something that we are so eternally, especially eternally grateful for and thankful for. And we honor the Lord Jesus Christ and lift you up, lift him up, lift the spirit up for what you have done. And so as we study your word this morning, it is with that in mind that the awesome God of the universe has chosen his elect and given them eternal life. Why you chose us, we will never know, but we thank you, Lord. And so this morning, as we study your word, let it be, Forefront in our minds that you have given us eternity, and we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. So, and that indeed is what we celebrate. We talked about two weeks ago, I believe it was, when we read, went through the section on the Lord's Supper, the sacrament that the Lord gave to us to remember him by, and we'll, we'll touch on that a bit this morning and then move on um, if we can. <laughs> from verse 25 where we left off. But let's, let's read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 through the end of the chapter, for that's where we will be. That will give us local context. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 through 34. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. (laughs) Finishing up on verse 25, two weeks ago, he took the cup, which we recognize was the equivalent of the third cup in the Passover celebration, and he, he raised it, and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We covered quite a bit of ground on that. One thing we need to take away from it for certain is that he intended for us to do this regularly, to celebrate the, the, his, his uh, victory over sin on the cross regularly. Uh, different, And we talked about the fact that different cultures, different bodies, different peoples have celebrated that interval differently. It can be in the early days of the church, it was every day in some cases, or weekly. And today it's often monthly. But the point is, we celebrate it, we remember, we honor the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember and we offer our, our thanks to him. The sacrifices are done that were required in the temple. Christ offered himself once for all, and this is what we remember. This is what the Corinthians were encouraged to think about and to remember as they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. And this should initiate a solemnity that would remind them of the cost of their redemption, it should remind them also that Christ came to be a servant to all and that they should as well. And so, by extension, that we should as well. So now we're going to move to verse 26. And this is where we get the the suggestion of an interval. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the frequency of the celebration is not given to us in Scripture. As mentioned earlier, and in the early days of the church, in some households it was celebrated every day. Others celebrated it weekly. Today, churches celebrate it often once a month. In any case, it is a solemn and special time. One translation uses the word show and implies that the Lord's death is presented possibly to the Father. This is unscriptural. The word is actually the Greek word which means to proclaim and is, and is um, used mostly, if not exclusively, of the action of preaching the gospel to people. How many of you have heard... The story that your walk speaks so loudly, I can't hear your talk, or some variation of that. That's the notion here, that we proclaim the Lord's death when the world sees us celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so the world would have seen the Corinthians celebrate the Lord's Supper, elbowing each other out of the way, rushing to the table, jerking the good food off, and and sequestering it to certain peoples who would eat eat it quickly in case the poor people and the servants got there and sullied those dishes with their dirty hands. That's what was going on in the Corinthian church. And that's what they were proclaiming to the world. The Christianity is all about selfishness. It's about me first. It's about you get out of my way. And it's about, yes, you are all entitled to my opinion. Thank you very much. That's what they were doing. And it was proclaiming the wrong message. And Jesus said to his disciples, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming to the world what you think of the Lord's death until I come back, until he comes back. The celebration of the Lord's Supper, would you, if you would, is an actual sermon in action. And it is acting out some of the things that the Lord himself did that night in the upper room. What did the Lord start that night out with? He washed his disciples' feet. He did what only the lowliest, the least servant would do to start that evening out. As you came in the door, you kicked your shoes off and they had servant number four or, or child number four or whatever would wash your feet from the dusty road. The Lord Jesus Christ did that. That's the beginning. And for that reason, many there are some uh, bodies of Christ who celebrate, who believe that it is a sacrament to celebrate the washing of the feet. We don't necessarily believe that here, but I have no objection to it if someone wants to do it. It's, it's part and parcel of that night, and it's, it's, an amazing con- it's an amazing confirmation of the fact that he said, I came as a servant to be a servant to all. This is what I want you to do, Corinthians. That's what Paul is telling the Corinthians. And they would have been taught carefully what happened in that upper room numerous times. They would have known what happened that night. And it is a reminder of a remembrance of what he has done for the Corinthians and for us. This should have been another potent reminder to them that their actions were telling the world about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what they were telling the world was a false narrative. During the Lord's Supper, their lives and their actions were preaching false doctrine. It is also important to note that the celebration of the Lord's Supper in this way is a temporary thing. It looks back to the sacrifice of the cross, but it also looks forward till he comes to the second coming. In both of these, it is a positive and blessed remembrance and a forecast. It's a remembrance and a forecast at once, looking back, looking forward. The proclamation of the Lord's death by the celebration of the Lord's Supper will continue until He comes, and then no proclamation will be necessary because He will be with us physically. Any questions or concerns about verse 26? Comments? Verse 27. Now we're going to get into what can be, I have seen, can be a thoroughly misunderstood section of Scripture, especially for the perfectionist in us. And so, as we go through this section, it's going to be with a couple of things at the outset. Who among us is perfect? Okay, that that doesn't mean I am. I'm just asking for (laughs) you evil thing. Who among us is close to perfect? Who among us is... Okay, I'm done there. But the point is, none of us is. The Lord Jesus Christ is. And he's calling an imperfect people to celebrate his death and his resurrection with the cup and with the bread. And so with that in mind that none of us is or will be until we go home to be with him, perfect. Let's read this next section. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. The word unworthy comes from... Um, Two Greek words, the preposition a, which means not, and the word axios, which means worthy or deserving of respect. It can also mean to assign the proper value to. Is the number seven worthy of the value of eight? Well, unless it's common core, but but let's... Let's stick with logic here. Is it? It, I know that sounds silly, but it would foul the entire system that we have up. It would wreck computers. It would crash rockets. It would destroy automobile engines. Everything would grind to a halt if we assigned the wrong value to a number. Doesn't mean that number seven is any less worthy than number eight. It's just not worthy of that value. That's part of what is being talked about here. He He who chooses not to assign the proper value to himself, the proper value, looking at himself, investigating himself, can be, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. It comes from the idea of weighing, of, of um, it's befitting, it's congruous, it's something of merit, something that has a specific amount of merit. And so the idea here is that when someone comes to the Lord's Supper, they need to have assessed themselves. In the greater sense, none of us will ever be worthy of, of ever partaking in the Lord's Supper. Let's just get that out of the way at the beginning. If, if the Lord Jesus Christ himself was the one who offered the Lord's Supper, none of us will ever be that kind of worthy. It cannot be here on this planet. That is not what he's talking about. They need to have assessed themselves. The point is, and what Paul is getting at, especially in the context of the Corinthians matter, is what is in your heart? Are you coming to this table prepared to submit yourself to one another? Are you willing to live your lives as did the Lord Jesus and as the Holy Spirit empowers you to do? Have you examined yourself and come to the conclusion that you are prepared for this table today? Is there unrepentant sin in your life? Is your attitude one of love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you delight in giving yourself in service to them? Would you put them before you? Is there one or more in the congregation whom you need to seek out and make something right with? If not, if you've answered those questions to the negative, if there's someone you need to make something right with, if you haven't examined yourself, if you're not prepared to serve one another, if you don't love them like life itself, then you're not coming worthily in this sense. And you are guilty of the very same actions that put the body of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and spilled his blood. That's what this is saying. None of us can never come to the Lord's Supper free of all sin. We are creatures of the flesh. We have been redeemed and we are made new, but the flesh hangs on. Our body hasn't been redeemed yet. The question is, and we must remember this in the context in which Paul was writing, how are you treating one another? Do we ever treat each other the way we ought to? Perfectly. But the question is, is that your motivation? Is your heart to serve, to treat one another with love and care? That's what Paul's asking. He's asking the Corinthians this. And if you are elbowing people out of the way to get to the roast beef, you're not treating people well. Unless it's really good roast beef. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) The Corinthians were treating one another terribly and this would have been the direct reference Paul was making. The sad truth was it appeared that the Corinthians were not making any effort to come to the table worthily. The sad truth was they were treating it as any other meal and indeed they were treating it as though they were unbelievers, partaking of that meal and getting all they could before someone else might get something they wanted. There's not a sense of perfection required that only the Lord has, but there's a sense of have I assessed myself Am I, doing, am, I, am I loving my brothers and sisters? Am I serving them? Do I want to serve them? Is my heart right toward all of them in here? Do I have something against one of them that I, or they have something against me that needs to be made right? That's what it's talking about. And then there is no shame in passing by the elements. As a matter of fact, it's a glorious thing. When you've assessed yourself and you recognize your need to get things right before the Lord, there's no shame. It's an honorable thing. In, in as much as you are doing it in the way that the Lord demanded and, and required. And so Paul is asking them and telling them, and this is, what the Lord, this is what the Lord intended, and this thing keeps turning pages on me. We need fans. Therefore, whoever drinks of the bread, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you've assessed yourselves, and and Jim, each time we have the Lord's Supper here, he gives time for that to happen. And and again, don't look for absolute perfection. None of us has that. But what's your heart? That's what the Lord's asking for. And then in verse 28, uh, we'll see more of that. Any questions about that? I know some of us have struggled with the idea that we must be perfect before. As close as possible on this planet, yes. But that means these things. Have you assessed? Have you gone to the right ones to make things right? Those are what the Lord is talking about. But a man must examine himself, verse 28. And in so doing, he is to eat of the drink, eat of the bread, and drink of the cup. So examine. I forgot worthy, there's worthy, if you wanna write it all down, examine, is to test, to prove, to scrutinize, to see whether a thing is genuine as not or not, as metals. When, uh, when the Constitution authorizes the federal government to make sure that money is worth what it's supposed to be, that was the intention for them to uh, stamp silver, for example, as .999 pure. How many of you have seen that, .999 on silver? Why don't they put 100%? Well, because they can't know. When you handle it, it's no longer 100% because your body oils are on it and may even, to some degree, combine with the surface silver. And that's how it is on this planet. Nothing is 100. It's always .999. I wish I was at .999. But so we're to weigh it, we're to, to, both in a good and a bad sense, what is it of me that needs to be weighed? So to put it to the test, to examine it. And, and uh, we can take self-introspection, we can take introspection to such a degree that, that uh, it paralyzes us, and that's not the Lord's intention here. It is important to recognize that before one partakes of communion, they should examine themselves. This is not a spiritual autopsy performed to the nth degree because we do not have the ability to do that nor does an attempt to validate everything in my Christian life so that I am perfect before I partake of the elements. That is not possible either. In fact, it is important to come to this table recognizing that I am in no way worthy in the first place. If one believes they are worthy, then they are certainly not. It is with a humble and penitent heart that we approach the Lord's Supper. We we have made right anything we know that stands between us and another. We have examined our hearts, and oh, and by the way, if you have by god's grace and by the empowerment of the holy spirit gone to someone and tried to make it right and it's still not right but you have made the effort that's what it's talking about if one will not forgive you but you've you have made the correct the proper biblical overtures to secure that forgiveness to make the situation right you're worthy in that sense we know what stands between us and another. We have examined our hearts and we do not find any unrepentant sin. We are aghast at our own wickedness and desperate to know the goodness of God every day in our lives. How many of you have noticed as you've, become, as you've gotten older in the Lord, you feel less worthy? And that's, that's correct. That's correct. As you understand more of the scripture, as you understand more of what Christ has done for us, it becomes more unbelievable that he would do that for me. I'm not worthy of the least of that. And that is part of understanding the, the, that where you stand in the Lord. Uh, this is who can come to a communion, not a perfect one, but an imperfect that loves their Lord. The celebration of the Lord's Supper is the place where the church can be purified. As believers acknowledge the Lordship of God in their lives. as they come to the table, much can be made right. It is not a magic ceremony. It is a renewing of one's giving of oneself to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? He's talking to believers. That Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. 1 John three twenty. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. God is greater than our hearts. And first, uh, Psalm 139, 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any, be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. The very fact that we are called to examine ourselves by Paul indicates that the examination has the potential to yield a positive outcome. The idea of the word used is from the Greek that means to prove something. We can in our unworthiness be found worthy to partake of the Lord's supper because of what he has done in us, to us, I should say. We are righteous in Christ and as we acknowledge our own sinfulness, we can also acknowledge that Christ has been work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. As also for clarity's sake, notice that in this verse and in verse 27, the reference is established and that one needs to examine themselves before they take partake of the elements are to bread and to the cup. Clearly this mitigates against any idea of transubstantiation again, or of consubstantiation. One one commentator put it this way. This is the third inference from the account of the Lord's Supper which Paul had received. It requires self-examination and preparation in order to be worthily received, to being worthily received. If it be a commemoration of Christ's death, if we are herein made partakers of his body and blood, open quote, close quote, if we contract such guilt by eating and drinking unworthy, in other words, if such blessings attend the worthy receiving and such guilt the unworthy receiving of this ordinance, it is evident that we should not approach it without due self-inspection and preparation. Let a man examine himself. In other words, let him ascertain whether he has correct views of the nature and design of the ordinance. Why are we doing this? And whether he has the proper state of mind, why am I doing this? That is whether he desires thankfully to commemorate the Lord's death, renewedly to partake of the benefits of that death as a sacrifice for his sins, not corporate, my sins individually, which caused him to be on the cross. To publicly accept the covenant of grace with all its promises and obligations and to signify His fellowship with His brethren as joint members with Himself of the body of Christ, and so let Him eat. That is, after this self-examination, and as is evidently implied after having ascertained that He possesses the due preparation. It is not essential, however, to this preparation, as before remarked, that we should be assured of our good estate, but simply that we have the intelligent desire to do what Christ requires of us when we come to this table. If we come humbly seeking Him, He will bid us welcome and feed us with that bread whereof a man, if a man eat, he shall never die. It's a, it's a wondrous ceremony, and it requires preparation. And I would advocate that we all know when communion, we usually know when communion is. You can be thinking about it the week ahead, the, the, the days ahead. Is there something I need to do before communion? Communion can be a place, as they have said, I've, I've seen others say, many commentators, it can be a place of the purifying of the church, where... I've got this, I've had, to, I've had to forego communion numerous times in my life when at the table I realized, and, and God will be faithful to remind you of those things that you need to set straight. He will be faithful. Trust him for that. Trust him for that. Any questions, comments, additions? And then verse 29, Paul continues this, this uh, informational if you will, about the the Lord's Supper and about the positives and the negatives that can be accrued to us. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. This verse can be looked at in one of two ways, either of which is biblically sound. This may be speaking of one who does not properly look at the elements of the Lord's Supper and of the celebration itself, eats and drinks judgment to himself. He doesn't understand what the Lord's Supper is about. He's got wrong views about the sacrament itself. The word judgment, properly translated here, references the idea of chastisement and discipline. It is not the word used of final judgment, which refers to the condemnation of unbelievers. Remember, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, it says in Romans 8.1. In this sense, it is speaking of one who does not properly distinguish this meal from other meals and does not understand what the elements themselves represent. And it may cause him to hurry to the table and get his fill first. And some Corinthians were doing that. The other way of looking at it is that as one who does not treat the body of Christ, which is the church, properly, he drinks judgment to himself. That is, he is not loving, considerate, and deferential to the others in the body of Christ. This has some merit, especially in this book, in this epistle, because we have just come off of a long litany of abuses perpetrated on each other by the Corinthians. It is less likely, though, because there is no reason to assume here that the word body means the church, when contextually, in earlier verses, it refers to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let it not be said, though, that one must be perfect. We need to repeat this again. One commentator tells this story. An old highland minister, seeing an old woman hesitate to receive the cup, stretched it out to her, saying, Take it, woman, take it. It's for sinners. It's for you. If the table of Christ were only for perfect people, none might ever approach it. The way is never closed to the penitent sinner. To the man who loves God and his fellow men, the way is ever open. And his sins, though they be as scarlet, shall be as white as snow any questions about verse 29 comments verse 30 for this reason for this reason for the reasons for the reason previously specified eating and drinking drinking judgment to themselves many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep paul specifically refers to the twisted method of celebrating the lord's supper as a reason for the lord judging many of the corinthians <laughs> even with death sleep is often a synonym of death in scripture, especially in the New Testament. It was used of Lazarus in John chapter 11 and Stephen in Acts chapter seven as well as several other places. We'll look at a few, John 11:11. Actually, there were numerous places, so I just I selected a few, yeah, more than a few. A few is three. No, a few is 10. Yeah, a few is 10. Because didn't, didn't uh, um, Rachel's father say, can't the, la- the, the last stay with us two days, or at least a few, and then she stayed 10? So that's where I get that. John eleven eleven, This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus, Jesus talking to his disciples, has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Acts chapter 7 referred to, verse 60. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. That was during the stoning of Stephen. Um, Acts 13, 36. For David... After he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. 1 Corinthians 15:6. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred brethren, speaking of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of whom remain until now, until now, but some have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15:20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. 1 Thessalonians. 4, 13 and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the, do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And last, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we, shall, we will live together with him. This is not saying, by the way, that this was the only cause of death in Corinth. But Paul is indicating that this was one of the causes. The Lord was expressing his displeasure at the way the Corinthians were misusing one of the ordinances of the church and displaying arrogance toward the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles at the very beginning of the New Testament church. What am I saying here? Could some of our maladies in the modern day church be part and parcel results of the way of some of us celebrating Christ? Some of the modern church celebrating the Lord's Supper unworthily. Yes, I am saying that. That's what the text says. I cannot get away from it. But that is between the individual and the Lord. It is not something that the rest of us would know. So judge ourselves. And then he says in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. And the word judged, diacrino, to separate, to make a distinction, to discriminate to learn by discrimination, to try, to decide. And and again, even the the process of learning to properly assess ourselves is just that. It's a process. As we learn more and more scripture, as we understand doctrine better, we will understand the things that that concern the Lord and that should concern us and that we must make right before we come to the Lord's table. (laughs) Paul uses two related but different words that are translated judge. The first is an intensified version that involves introspection and discerning what we are compared to what we should be. If in our introspection and checkup we discovered that as communion is being prepared to be served, we are not what we should be, then it is best for us to forego the communion service at that time. Whatever fault we discovered should be dealt with in an appropriate way. We should use scripture and submission to the Holy Spirit to guide this introspection. The the second word translated judged, is um, used to demonstrate proper judgment, to bring to trial, in, like in a court of law. So if we... Let me, let me kind of be the amplified Bible here, but you do your own study. Um, if we carefully weigh ourselves, rightly, we will not be judged in a court of law. Judge yourself ahead of time. And so then... If the Corinthians do this, those who are weak and sickly and even dying because of their improper um, approaching of the Lord's table, that would cease to happen. They would begin to be, for those reasons, would begin to be healthy again. Ron. it'd be a different way of looking at it I, I I can't quite get that contextually but I see where you're coming from if that was their only meal of the week yeah would letting these people perish' judging body making less thing I don't disagree with what you yeah no I understand what you're saying I would advocate that as the way we treat one another has an effect on each other does it not Can we? I just read in the, the, uh, I'm not going to comment on whether I agree or disagree, but I just read on a news about some girl who texted a guy to to commit to kill himself. And now, I'm not casting any blame here, but I can tell you this, there are people in my life who I respect greatly, and if they told me to do something that I didn't really want to do, but they were the ones that told me, I'd step back and think, wow, should I? But there are other people in my life, if they told me to do something, I'd go, huh. Have a nice day or a bad day, whichever's first. Let's see, B is before N. Yeah, have a bad day. The point is, yes, I suspect that how those people were treating each other was having an, a, a serious, could have an emotional and even a physical effect on each other. I'm, I don't see that in the text. But, but I could, the way we treat one another affects each other. A with, with an A affects each other. And we need to be cognizant of that. Um, and our behavior needs uh, is, is anybody else's behavior in here changing still or are you perfect mine is still changing sometimes radically because I'm so far from perfect and so from that perspective I see what you're talking about Ron and it's a good point it's not in the text but it's a good point any other comments or questions about 28 or where are we I don't even know where we're at Thirty-one, verse 31 Um, Paul is telling the Corinthians that if they would properly judge themselves, it would be unnecessary for the Lord to convict them of wrong in their celebrations of the Lord's Supper. The conviction of wrong in the supper wasn't just to be convicting. It was to correct behavior, to purify the church, to cause believers to treat each other the way they should, to cause believers to treat the unbelievers as they should. By the way, that's not necessarily explicit here, but we have an obligation to treat people As they should be treated, as the Lord would have us treated, have us treat them. And the Corinthians were not doing that. And Paul is saying, it could be why some of you are sick and why some of you are dying. And I think we need to think about that in the modern church. How we treat each other can have that kind of an effect. Any other comments? Verse 32 But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world upon being judged by god the corinthians and by by extension we can be disciplined by god this discipline is mentioned before as mentioned before can even include death but it is done by a loving god who does it to turn us back to the right way even in death it is simply a loving correction that brings the offender into the presence of god Salvation is not lost. rather the Lord sovereignly chastens in a manner that will bring that believer home and hopefully bring, hopefully bring repentance-producing fear among, upon the remaining believers. Let me say that again. It is rather the Lord, when he sovereignly chastens in a manner that will bring that believer home and hopefully bring repentance, not hopefully, the Lord doesn't do things hopefully, that will bring repentance-producing fear upon the remaining believers. When God brings that discipline for it to us, we are to be grateful for it and we're not to regard it lightly. And in Hebrews, which I think Jim is going to get to in 2025, is what I understand. Is that about right? Yeah, no. Okay. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. I looked at this section differently when relating it to the Lord's Supper. And and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. But rather, I'm, I'm interspersing this, correct your behavior. Which shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. No other reason, for our good, so that we may share his holiness, actually also to glorify him. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet those to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So to those Corinthians who began to think about this and to look into themselves and to approach the Lord's table properly, it yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness, which meant, do you think the Corinthian church could use a little peace based on what we've come through? It sure could. They needed a little bit of peace, a lot of peace in that church. And as I'm... Is the Lord's Supper the only place that this can happen? No, but it is a place that can happen where we look into ourselves and we make things right. And what is one of the yields of that making right? It is peaceableness. Peaceable, not peacefulness. Peaceableness to one another. So when we are judged, we are disciplined. Are you glad you're disciplined by the Lord? It means you're a child. My, my kids, have, we have a Father's Day um, tradition that we've had for, I don't know, since they actually had money, so of their own. <laughs> Actually, I think we did it before that, because they wanted to. I don't know, it's been too long. And this morning, they take, me, they take me to breakfast on Father's Day. And I disciplined those kids. I mean, I loved them, I hated doing it sometimes. I never, that's, by the way, that's one of the things that if, if a dad is approaching, spanking his kids, going, <laughs> it's about time they did something wrong so I can beat the living daylights out of them, that dad's got a problem. I hated spanking my kids. I tried to avoid it. I looked for other things. I would sometimes I didn't I didn't have to make them a lot, but I did have to occasionally discipline them that way. And you know what? They still love me. Pardon? I I don't know. I hope so. Now I I'm not like the father. He never makes mistakes. He never disciplines us out of place. He never disciplines us too much or too little. He never disciplines us in a manner not consistent with who we are and what we need. But I did. And yet the scripture says that our fathers disciplined us for a short time to seem best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. That's something we need to remember to remind ourselves of when the Lord is bringing discipline in our lives. It is always for our good. I'm trying to remember exactly the quotation, but sometimes we think it's a catastrophe. It's a disaster. And and God is trying to both discipline us and teach us. And I think it was John MacArthur, he said, never let a good catastrophe go to waste. He said that before the mayor of Chicago, by the way, because I remember reading about this like 30 years ago. Never let a good catastrophe go to waste. Use it the way God would direct you to use it. Cause it. Let it be the cause of you drawing closer to the Lord, drawing closer to those whom you love. Or changing your attitude towards those whom you don't love to those whom you love, as God is directing. So then, now we get a little bit of practical. What, is, what was one of the things that was going on that Paul's talked about earlier? And it, I just love the practical nature of the Holy Spirit. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And I think, hopefully, that whoever read it in front of the Corinthian church said it something like that. Wait for one another. Really? Paul's teaching in this section culminates with the Greek word hosta, which means therefore, or so then. He counsels them first, eat together in order to make that proper, to wait for one another. In many ways, this seems like simple kindergarten rules, but the Corinthians needed this: wait for one another, love one another, serve one another. In his book, All I Really Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten, Robert Fulgham proposed these rules. Some of them are a little bit crass, but they're interesting. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Mothers, can you relate to this? Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some and drink some and draw some and paint some and sink and dance and play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. I'm still working on that one. When you go out into the world, watch for traffic, hold hands and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seed in the styrofoam cup. The roots go down and the plant goes up and nobody really knows how or why, but we are all like that. Goldfish and hamster and white mice and even the little seed in the styrofoam cup, they all die, so do we. And remember the Dick and Jane books and the first word you learned, the biggest word of all, look. Look out for each other. Watch for each other. Hold each other's hands when it's needed. Pray for one another. I love our prayer chain. It reminds me of when I need to be praying for people. I love to know, I don't like to know that there are hard things going on in your life, but I like to be able to pray for you. I like to be able to hold you up to the Lord of glory, who can actually do something about it in prayer. Be gracious. Paul did not say it, but it's pretty evident that what he was saying was, you rich, wait for the poor. And, and I, I shouldn't, now I'm, I'm stereotyping. There probably were some pretty arrogant poor people in that church too, who had it in, would like to stick it to those rich capitalist pigs, you know. Probably. So, so I don't want to avoid, I'm stereotyping, and, and God is far more than just one or two. He knows the entire gamut. He is able to orchestrate and work it all. It's an amazing, wondrous thing. Paul writes these words knowing that the Holy Spirit would convict the correct ones. And I remember a man telling me one time when I was trying to get my fingers into everything, he said, you know, the Holy Spirit was doing fine before you came along. He really was. He really does. He really is trustworthy and glorif- one whom we should glorify and honor and thank. So verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. In order to prevent the temptation to run to the table and gorge before the others got there, Paul gives the common sense advice. If you are so hungry that you don't think you'll be able to wait, eat at home, grab a piece of chicken. Or, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm extending it into the modern world. This meal was much less about the food and much more about the fellowship and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ first and with one another. There must have been other issues related to worship, the Lord's Supper, and maybe even things um, hailing back to the early chapters that Paul needed to address. But in this particular situation, he says that he would deal with them when he actually came to Corinth. Chapter 11, we're gonna review a, a bit here. Chapter 11 covered an awful lot of territory. Paul dealt with the propriety of women in worship and how they could communicate to the pro- world proper information about how a Christian woman worships in the culture she lives in. He talked about, um, he reminded them of the order of creation, and yet of the interdependence of the sexes. That Men and women, we need each other. Men need women, the women need the men. He also covered an egregious violation of the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and he gave the Corinthians clear instructions on how to get back on track his overarching concern that is that the body of believers worship the Lord properly and serve one another, and in this chapter he covers that very well. And thus ends chapter eleven. Um, we will be going into oh, any questions or comments about verse thirty-four? If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that he may not you may not come so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. That's a good piece of advice for other things, too. If you've, if there's something that, that you're not good at executing in the presence of others, deal with it at home. Deal with it at home, whatever it is, so that when you come together as a body, you're a, your heart is of a servant's nature. So chapter 12, I'm not going to even read the introduction today, but um, I'd appreciate it if as you read it, think about how it applies to today's world. There's so much going on that First Corinthians, well, all of the scripture covers everything. I mean, God... God wrote this in such a manner through the Holy Spirit that, that uh, it meets our needs. It gives us everything we need to live godly in Christ Jesus, wherever we're at, whatever is, is necessary in our lives. But in chapter 12, um, Paul said now concerning, in verse 7, he said, now concerning about the things which you wrote, this must have been one of them. And in chapter 12, we're going to be talking about the spiritual gifts. What are they? How do they work? why do we have them, what is their purpose, etc. I'm not going to go through the list. There's a list of questions we will seek to answer. And uh, it's going to be, and come with your questions because other people are here who actually know the Bible. Come with your answers, come with your concerns, and we'll work our way through chapter 12. It's going to be fun. We'll find out what pagans are. We'll find out what pagans aren't. We'll find out what... uh, it's just as I, as I did a, an overview of it, if it, it, it's one of those chapters of Scripture that you could take three weeks to do the, over, the overview. I won't do that to you, but it probably will take half of one Sunday school just to give you the overview. So, any questions or comments? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for bringing this body of believers together who you have chosen in this day to put together to love you, to serve you, individually and corporately as a body of Christ. We pray, Lord, your hand upon all that we do, your reminder and your introspection, your work into our lives so that we will evaluate ourselves as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing exactly what that means, that we are not worthy, but you have made us worthy. Our righteousness comes from Christ and from Christ alone, through him alone, by him alone, for his glory. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.